Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. George, thank you so much for joining. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. No worries, Tam. Thanks for having me on. I'm really keen to chat to you today because there are many of my listeners that have asked me to do an episode on sibling loss. And you came straight to mind because I remember your twin, Will, who was diagnosed with cancer a good number of years ago. And I'm really sorry to hear about everything that happened and that you lost him. So maybe you could tell us a bit about Will and and your relationship and what he was like. Okay, sure. No worries, Tam. So um, Will was my uh, twin brother. We were born uh, nearly 30 years ago, so it's coming up to my 30th birthday, which is slightly concerning. And he unfortunately passed away at the age of 24, which is coming up to five years ago this August. So he was a very sort of out there, charismatic chap. He was a commercial pilot in training, finished all of his training exercises, lived over in Florida doing that. So um and we, I do take a lot of um, sort of pleasure in the fact that he had a good few years leading up to his cancer diagnosis. Just at the time, he was about to start flying for a European airline called called Jet Two, and um, suddenly started becoming unwell. Sort of things sort of spiraled from there, really. And he got diagnosed with cancer three years before he passed away. So he would have actually been 22 years old when he when he did get the diagnosis. And then, yeah, sort of two and a half, three years later, he passed away, unfortunately. In the end, it was, it was brain tumour. So what type of cancer did he have to begin so, with? So going back to the first diagnosis, um, he had um, various pains in his stomach, um, wasn't feeling sort of too great about it. So he went into hospital, had countless checks, Cancer wasn't really talked about at first, but it was sort of ongoing and it just wasn't budging anywhere. And I think I remember he was actually admitted into hospital on a general ward for a couple of uh, weeks. And then he got transferred over to a specialist hospital in Liverpool. And as quite often is the case, unfortunately, when they get into a different, more specialist hospital within hours, they get a, a diagnosis. So um, originally it was a very, very bad diagnosis. It was an inoperable tumour in his liver various other complicated cancer terms which I'm not too sure about the only thing which sort of resonated in my mind was the the sort of inoperable tumor in the liver Um, but the sort of great news there and then was he was put straight onto a sort of treatment plan at our local sort of cancer hospital which you know if anyone you know listening to this ever has a you know a friend or family member of themselves which ever gets diagnosed with cancer i think you've got to take you've got to take good feelings of the fact that they put you onto treatment plans straight away because they, doctors are quite blunt they will just say there's nothing we can do it's an inoperable tumor go and enjoy two years you know and we'll we'll see you then he was put onto sort of you know hardcore chemotherapy regime didn't have any operations. It was just straight into chemotherapy with the sort of idea that it might shrink this tumour a little bit. And then uh, sort of months passed on, he started that. Obviously, he lost his hair. That was a tough, tough time, actually, because I was immersed and I was only young at the time as well, sort of early 20s. And to be 
involved in that whilst working full time was a bit of a bit of a tough time. But um, we've got a great group of friends and family around us, so I kept myself busy. We used to go visit him in hospital, but sort of selfishly, never really got too involved with going to appointments and hearing on updates and stuff. And when the sort of you know, bi-monthly scans came, then uh, this tumour was shrinking and it was all looking very good. And then uh, probably about a year later, by some miracle, the doctors were, were literally sort of like, you know, we're really happy with the progress here. And essentially, we're, we're almost at the stage where we can put you into remission. This tumour had shrunk to essentially nothing and it was looking absolutely awesome. So we, we then had a year of... Um, brilliant times we went on holidays loads he wasn't going for any treatment he was just getting checked up sort of regularly but you know as far as he was concerned he was pretty much he was in remission and uh, the cancer had gone in his liver and he was living a pretty normal active lifestyle he wasn't quite going back to flying because flying involves a lot of medical examinations on pilots so it was probably a bit too soon really to jump on that he was more concerned about having a year of you know, being cancer-free after the shocking sort of eight, nine months he'd been through chemotherapy. He then went out and ran um, the Rotterdam Marathon. Wow. Um, in, this would have been in 2016, April time. The reason he did Rotterdam Marathon is because him and I are keen Aston Villa supporters. And for those of you might follow football in the UK. Aston Villa won the European Cup in 1982 in Rotterdam, so we chose to run it in Rotterdam. So he did it with a, with a sort of mutual, you know, really good friend of ours. And then 18 of us went over and watched him and it was a good party time. We stayed in Amsterdam and Will led us on all the activities around Amsterdam. Anyway, he finished the marathon, you know, times were good. And little did we know, he ran that marathon with four undiagnosed brain tumours. And then probably a month later, started having persistent headaches, yeah, we, we sort of had to rush him into hospital. Well, we didn't rush him into hospital. We made the said, you need to go and get this checked out. And then, unfortunately, on that one, it was, you know, a quick scan and they saw it straight away. And 12 hours later, he had a 10-hour bra- uh, major brain surgery in, in Liverpool over in the northwest of England. So um, that was, you know, the start of his downfall, unfortunately. And he, he survived the operation, got back on his two feet, but was you know, gravely ill for a few weeks after that. And then with the brain tumours he then had, he then started radiotherapy. And then essentially it you know, didn't really go to plan. And then he rapidly went downhill, um, which we might come on to later on in the podcast. But, you know, that's one of the best things about the way my uh, my brother passed away was it was pretty rapid in the end it was probably about three weeks from being given a terminal diagnosis there's nothing we can do to him passing away at at the family home and he was only actually at the family home for about five days before he passed away so um that was you know essentially quite a good sort of part of the whole story did happen pretty quickly over just a sort of month or two but you know we'd been living with it over hanging shadow of cancer for probably two years um, by this point. Firstly, thank you for sharing that with me. I know it's really hard to talk about. What was it like in that time when you knew for the couple of years that he had cancer and it was always this kind of back of your mind feeling of my twin's going to pass away at some point? How did that feel? It was pretty terrible, to be honest. It couldn't Life couldn't have been much worse at the time because every day you're thinking that you're going to lose your twin brother. And when he gets that original diagnosis, which was so bad, up until that sort of brief of 10 months to a year stage I talked about earlier, 
it really did. And I look back now and, you know, everything was such a blur. And I, you know, questioned, you know, my work at the time. I was working for a different company to work for now. And um, they were very supporting and they knew what, what was going on. And it was hard to comprehend, really. What, what I found myself doing is I took myself out of a situation an awful lot. You know, I was a, I was a, I was a bloke in my, in my early 20s. It was so easy to take myself out of the situation by going out, you know, on nights out and, you know, to various sports and trips and holidays. And yes, you know, Will came on a few of those with me, but, you know, a lot of the time he was too ill to, to do any of that. So, you know, maybe a little bit of guilt still stays with me now to this day that, you know, it's probably my parents which had to deal with the brunt of it because, and, and they would they would always say to me, you know, it's too raw for you. You're his twin brother. Do what you want to do. So I would find myself sort of going away for days on end and not really just not really thinking about it and just pretending that this was all just one big living hell and you know only years after he passed away do you think back to those times and you know all the things which sort of happened on that roller coaster of a journey and there was plenty of different things which 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 went on um some good some obviously bad times you know lots of hospital visits you know well i'll tell you one quick quick funny story now so my fiance who um i'm actually marrying a month month yesterday she's a cancer nurse now on the cancer ward which will passed away and was treated on she wasn't a a nurse at the time and she started the the job maybe a year or two after will passed away and she said to the nurses you know her colleagues she said oh do you remember a chap called um will falk and uh they went yeah we do remember him and she was like and anna my fiance she goes i'm sort of going out with with his twin brother and they all rolled their eyes and when he was a bit of a nightmare because he would bring in four, five, ten different lads all at one time into the hospital. Obviously, he couldn't do that nowadays with COVID. But we used to, we quite often used to go on a Friday evening after work and, and drinking. We nurses didn't necessarily know this. We used to drink and have pre-drinks in a hospital for <laughs> him and it was a bit looking back we probably shouldn't have done it but we did it because will loved it and, and then we'd then go off into you know off to the bars and clubs after that so um oh. yeah looking back it was just a bit of a crazy crazy time really but you know luckily so thankful to have a, a core group of mates and and you need you need a core group of mates outside of your family because every time you're with your family in that stage, you're not taking yourself out of the situation. And it's very tricky talking to your family about everything. They're concerned about me. Um, so having sort of an escapism through, through friends is, is pretty vital to be honest as to how I got through it. And it sounds like it helped Will get through it as well. Like the fact that you guys were going there and having drinks and making him feel like he's still a normal person. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. One of my favourite stories of um, the first bout of chemotherapy went through was um, we started going and following the England national football team and we went over to Estonia to watch uh, an away match over there and he was completely like, he looked like he had cancer. Um, he had, you know, no hair, very pale, didn't look very well. And those doctors said, you know, you can't go abroad, you can't go to this football match. And he was like, no, I'm, I am going. So, you know... <laughs> Three or four of us picked. Well, we didn't. We picked. Took him. He came in from hospital, and he was sort of next due in a week later for his next round of chemotherapy. What he meant to do is rest for seven days, and you know, not have energy to do anything. We got the train down to Gatwick Airport and got him through the uh, through departures, and we got on a plane over to Latvia, and then I got another plane from Latvia the next morning to Estonia, and you know, we only had hand back. We only had hand luggage for this like three day trip. And um, his hand hand luggage bag was just full of needles and 
blood thinning injections he was giving himself every day. So we were having to have these awkward conversations of security at the airport. <laughs> what, what's these needles you've got in here? And he have to explain, oh, I've got cancer, blah, blah, blah. And we'd, so we'd do this. We'd go to the game. Everyone would look after him. And you know, he'd, he was very good at looking after himself. And then we'd and then he'd walk back into hospital a week later and the, the doctors would say, have you had a nice week? I hope you chilled out. And he was like, no, I've been to Latvia and Estonia and for three days. <laughs> <laughs> taking ahead but then when he recovered from that cancer the sort of the doctors actually said to him he said you know it's your it's, it was your sort of get up and go attitude it's probably massively helped your body overcome that originally you know, he that, kept him feeling good and feeling like he had something to still live for definitely yeah and at that time he didn't know whether he was going to live for much more than a year so he wanted to sort of crack on and do stuff and you know, we were always going to look after him and, you know, and we wanted him to get there as well. You know, we, we didn't necessarily want to go without him. Could you tell me a bit about what it was like when he passed away? Does it all just feel like it was a blur? No, it was, uh, I do remember it very well. So as I mentioned earlier, it was a very rapid downward spiral for him. He, um, he got, and again, this is the worst, this is the worst thing about the whole journey and the whole cancer thing is, you know, because he's an adult and, and doctors and people listening to this might really identify with this, with this. Doctors become very beige in their personalities when they talk to patients about cancer. They walk into a room and they go, you've got terminal cancer. That's it. Nothing we can do. And they leave. And then they just, it's there for the Macmillan nurses and the cancer nurses to then pick up the pieces. So, you know, he's he's with it in the head despite going through radiotherapy and brain tumors he's not you know bed bound he's there in hospital and the doctors come in tell him you know luckily i wasn't there because you know memories of that kind of stuff would would really sort of mm-hmm. uh, last last long in the memory and then um you know a few weeks later he was still in this sort of hospital you know having a bit of pain relief and stuff and then we decided to um get him home to our family home and it was um you know at this point he was really bed bound now so we got like a full hospital bed set up at home and then uh, the Macmillan nurses and cancer nurses were coming in sort of three or four times a day and there was we had loads of you know friends and family were just constantly at home um but kind of a bit not really awkward I actually had a holiday booked with my fiance and uh, another couple of friends to uh to Greece 10 days before he died and this had been booked for like months so um you know, my dad took me to one side and he's like, I think you still need to go on this holiday because, like I said earlier, it's too raw for you. It's your twin brother. You know, mm-hmm. you need to get out of this situation a little bit. And I, you know, I felt horrifically guilty about it. But, you know, I couldn't bear seeing my brother die in in, in, in the sort of in the house. So, um, so I sort of went on this holiday and it was just the weirdest you know, holiday ever, really. And then um, mm-hmm. three, two days before we were due to come home, my dad rings and he's like, um, yeah, you need to you need to come home now. I've found a flight. I'm leaving in sort of six hours. He's about to die. And so, so we packed our bags and just, just me and Anna and my fiance and we've headed off to the airport. But just before we left to go to the airport, he rang and my dad rang and said, um, Yeah, you just you just missed him, he's just passed away. Now, when I heard that news in this hotel lobby with my girlfriend and two mates at the time, another couple it was such a weird feeling because I'd already lost my brother three or four. Well, I'd lost him a month or two before this. But I definitely lost him in my head like three, you know, the three or four weeks before when it was a terminal diagnosis. And, you know, I was so 
relieved in a way that he'd actually just passed away before I'd, I'd got home. I I didn't want to get on a flight necessarily. Really, I'd said my goodbyes before I went. Everything had, he was going anyway, and he was very you know he was asleep. He was very bedbound. He wasn't sat up chatting. He he was sort of not there anyway. So to get that call that he'd finally that he'd passed away was a massive sort of overwhelming sense of relief. To be honest. And then we got on this this plane and it was just such a nice, bizarre feeling knowing that when I was landing, I wasn't going into a house filled with friends and family and I'm a brother on a bed about to pass away with us all. Cause he'd, and they say, you know, they, people do pick their times and he didn't, he didn't want it to be when there was loads of people there necessarily. He went off very quietly when there was one or two of his best mates in the room. Um, I, I don't think my mum and dad were necessarily there at the time around his bedside. Yeah. Um Sounds very bizarre to, to say this, but it was, you know, I don't, luckily for me, I don't have a, a lasting memory of being next to him when he, when he did pass away, but I've got 10 times worse memories from being, you know, seeing him an hour after being told he was going to die, which yeah. isn't the best thing to be chatting to your brother about. I think what you've been through is such an incredibly difficult journey. And, you know, it sounds like you and Will had such a really strong relationship and I, yeah. I don't blame him the slightest for doing that because if I was you, I would have done the same. Like there's a lot of times where you don't want to see your sibling going through that much pain. Mm-hmm. And what was it like in those next few months though? Did you find that you had enough support? Definitely had enough support. And I, I know this would vary for absolutely every individual and every situation and circumstance on, on the way somebody loses a sibling, whether it be in a car crash, cancer, every story is very different. But the support thing is absolutely massive. And to be honest, the, the weeks which followed were, looking back, they were just crazy, absolutely madness. So um, it was... 600 700 people at the funeral there was people up constantly it was you know we were trying our best to celebrate his life which we did but you know obviously in the back of everyone's minds and heads it was the fact that we just lost a you know family member and a good friend who was only 24 pretty horrible situation but it was um, an absolute whirlwind of a few weeks and, and months and I didn't really ever um hit hit the ground and think about it. I had no real reflection in the first month or two after it happened. You know, the funeral arrangements were straight away. There was stuff going on every day. People were about, I was going out on a, you know, as, as I said earlier, I was in my, you know, young twenties at the time, you know, it was, it was, I was escaping from the sort of the house and the situation and there was so much going on and we had to, the whole funeral was, you know, a, a big sort of, party and celebration would have been exactly you know the, the funeral he'd have wanted it was very boozy I mean the funeral was at like our local sports club and it took it took more money over the bar on a Tuesday night than it does for weddings on a Saturday I think it was only probably only really six months after Will passed away I hadn't even had any counselling. Everything had just been 100 miles an hour in my head which it was like that for my brother and I anyway and um and somebody said something which which is still stuck in my mind now. They said this probably about six months to a year after he passed away. I didn't even know this person very well, so I was a little bit taken aback by it. But they looked at me and they said, I don't think you've grieved for your brother. And I completely hadn't at all. I hadn't had a week or two of grieving. I'd just been living a fast lifestyle ever since. and Almost again, pretending it never really happened. And then it was all just one roller coaster of a journey. And to be honest, five years on, 
I know this what this person said to me is stuck in my head, but I sometimes I do doubt whether or not I have grieved properly about it. People don't really people check in on me and they, they always know but it's it's not a dark story or an awkward conversation because people know i like talking about it and you know the amount of times in life in a conversation you know you're having small talk with someone you've just met whether it be in a business world or social world and they go oh, you know you got any brothers you got any sisters? you can't shy away from the fact that what's happened you just have to tell someone but then I'll, and they always feel very guilty about it and they like, feel like they've opened a can of worms. But you have to straight away say, no, it's fine. You know, I'm happy to talk about it. It did happen. I, I accept it's happened now and I accepted that pretty quick. But I question whether or not I've grieved from it. Maybe I have, but maybe this whole support network is the, is the vital link on that and I probably have grieved about realising it is really common when you lose somebody when you're at a young age to go through that kind of not grieving. It happened to me because my mum passed away when I was 18. Yeah. I don't think I grieved for her until I was probably like in my mid-20s, like seven right. or eight years later. Because exactly. you just keep going, don't you? Like such a resilient young person. You just, life goes on. Definitely, definitely. And it's one, I wouldn't say I'm concerned about that, but um, it's it's one thing which stuck in the back of my mind a little bit. And maybe I'm not the kind of person which needs to, necessarily grieve you know I, I I'm not really a tearful person and I, I know what happened it was terrible the whole time but it, you know it comes back to that point of when he died I, so I, I'm just going to say actually it was a very good moment when I heard the news he died we, we almost celebrated in a way and one of the, one of the doctors actually collared my, um, my 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 mum and dad and said you know, you're quite, you're really lucky that he's passed away here because we've seen patients like this with a healthy heart who have been in that situation for nearly a year, which would have been, you know, an absolute massive toll on the family to have him in our home for, you know, anything over than a few months, really, when he's not doing anything other than lying in a hospital bed in the lounge. Maybe I had this sort of mentality of like cele- celebrating from the very moment he passed away. Um, and then celebrating his life, everything he'd done. One of the things I really like about the way that you seem to still have a connection with Will, and I always see on your Facebook when you're going to England matches or Aston Villa games, you take that flag with you. Yeah. Could you tell the listeners a bit about that flag? Yeah, so, um, well, for, for Aussie listeners, listeners out here, it's a very patriotic <laughs> thing to do in England. If you go and follow the national team in cricket, or football or anything, you get big St. George's flags and you get various writing on there, maybe connected to your hometown or clubs you support. And, you know, at, at Will's funeral, there was probably, you know, over 25 St. George's flags from across the country, which he knew of people, you know, people travelled to the funeral who who knew him from these trips abroad and stuff. So, um, you know, the day or two after he passed away suddenly loads of like you know the guys had ordered loads of these St George's flags and um, the group which ordered this flag which has been around the world ever since was a, a bit of a random group not necessarily close mates of us there were some lads from another part of the country and they'd, they'd ordered this St George's flag which said everywhere we go Will comes with us and there was a picture of, of Will at his last ever football match he went to in France a month before he died and um, this was before the rapid downhill and the terminal diagnosis. And it, I first looked at his flag and I wasn't actually a massive fan of it because I had a picture of him on the flag and it freaked me out a bit. <laughs> it was not really the one I would go to to get pictures with or get out. But 
accidentally in a weird way this flag just started going everywhere to like cricket tours in Australia, New Zealand, India, half of which were with me and some of my mates, but other guys would be like, can I take the flag there? Russia, every match, and people now, you know, the Caribbean on cricket tours has been, and people make like an effort to get this flag out and have this sort of connotation attached to it, like everywhere we go, Will comes with us. And there's been so many like crazy newspaper pictures from like one picture which really stands out was like a picture in the World Cup quarter final in Russia. I was there with a few good pals and we we just scored and we, we were about to win this match and like we didn't have this flag hung up. We were just waving it in the crowd. So you couldn't read what it said on it. But this picture's taken from a photographer and it's on the back of the newspaper in Russia the next morning. And you can see my brother's face just clearly on this on this flag as if he's like there in the crowd. Um, oh. you see the writing on it or anything. It's just bizarre, just a bizarre fluke of an angle of, of a picture. Um, and you know that the flag that that sort of flag really is like you know it's it's everyone's like way of saying you know we still will still here he's coming with us we take it everywhere yeah we you know we do take a lot of solace in putting that up in in stadiums actually and like it's great to see and like there's been times where um, like this BBC Sport have put a picture up of it the England at the cricket in India for example. And it might be a picture of our captain, our batsman, Joe, Joe Root, like celebrating, you know, getting 100 runs. But in the background, you can just see clearly a, a St. George's flag everywhere we go. Will comes with us, like superimposed behind this. It's little, you know, things like that. And it's just so cool to see. And it's like one thing I'm I'm really worried about with, with Will when he died. And this is probably one of my biggest concerns was people forgetting him. And thinking it would be, you know, a few years would pass and no one would remember I had a brother and no one would remember Will was there. But but by having that, that's one of the few things we have which which keeps his memory going and it, it gives me a lot of strength to make sure my brother's not forgotten about. And I think anyone listening to this which has lost a sibling needs to try and think of methods to keep their name out there. Like we do, a, we do an annual golf competition on the day he passed away on the 16th of August. And that happened by accident a week before the first anniversary. You know, Will was into playing golf and, you know, we, we quickly got 20 people together. And we went and played golf. But I got the Claret Jug Trophy with Will Felt Golf Tournament. Um on it and now it's this big golf tournament which everyone looks forward to every year a couple of years ago we had over 76 golfers playing in it and do you do that for charity as well we do do that for charity yeah and that's another thing we've done as as soon as he passed away we did set up a um a a permanent sort of just giving page connected with a with a children's young adults cancer charity called click sergeant so that sort of managed itself because it was like one of these permanent just giving pages so, yeah, we do raise, you know, the, the golf day and various other, you know, marathons we run and stuff. We, we do raise it in his name. We raise money in his name. But, um, yeah, the golf day every year, the flag going everywhere. And then there's another trophy at our local sports club, which is handed out every year to the young, um, young club member of the year, basically. So there might be like a 19-year-old who's been a, a, a really good coach, assisting the main coaches in tennis, for example. So he'd, he'd won it one year, etc. So, you know, it gives me massive strength that in the next 10 years, every time I, we have an awards evening there, there's a, there's a Will Falk Awards. And that, that is my, that's sort of what massively reassures me is people aren't forgetting that he lived 
and he's we were sort of we're still living we're still carrying on his name through various charity stuff yeah. I love it because it's a really great way for you to feel close to him again and like you, that connection isn't lost and it's going to be there throughout your future do you, how did it make you feel like and I don't know if this is quite a raw question to ask but has there at times it made you feel guilty that you were the one that got to live um that is a good question um yes and no to be honest um i think what i the, the worst things i saw about my brother on the cancer journey and the terminal diagnosis and the treatments he went in for i could see in his face you know the pain what he was going through was absolutely horrific and you, you feel terrible that, there's, that the one person who's going through this is your closest person, your twin brother and your best mate, but it's so bad what he's going through that it doesn't even ever cross your mind to even mm. put yourself in that in those shoes and think, you know, it, it might have been you. So um, sometimes I think I'm living for him as well, and I'll, I'll always do that, and that'll be my way of sort of showing that, that sort of side to it. Um, I won't let people forget about him. I'll keep raising money in his name. Yeah, there's a whole sort of whole ideology around it being the other way around with just, you know, the, the two sides to the story. You know, as I think you mentioned earlier, he'd have hated seeing me. He'd have been worried about what, you know, what our mum and dad were thinking and what I was thinking. So do you feel like losing Will has made you have a real kind of like excitement for life has it changed your outlook on things Mm, it definitely has but um i think the main instigator on that one was on the very first cancer diagnosis we didn't need any sort of like instigator to make us go and live our lives like as i say he was out in america flying you know learning to fly planes and we were always we, we both loved traveling and like seeing different countries and stuff so we didn't we weren't the kind of people which necessarily needed a wake-up call but the original cancer diagnosis certainly gave that extra wake-up call and we went we went at it full 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 blow there but um when he passed away it was we were just we, we carried on it wasn't like a a light bulb moment we were just you know we, we, we carried on where we left off essentially I think that's kind of what the difference is when you go through anticipatory grief, where you knew for a number of years that he was going to be ill. Like you almost started grieving for him whilst he was alive. I think that's really, really good point, actually. And that's probably definitely what happened with me, actually. Really, really good point. And one I haven't actually thought about, actually. Probably why that you've maybe felt like you've not grieved because you spent your time with him being alive grieving. Definitely. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, it was those... First few months after the first diagnosis was the toughest time, and then the final month and a half, um, things cleared up in the in the middle. Um, and that, you know, I was doing a lot of my grieving then, not not afterwards. And that, you know, it, you know, the situation does does change on everyone's situation. Whether it, you know, pe- you know, people lose siblings in hundreds of different scenarios, and if it's an instant accident, for example, then the grieving process will happen after after the death, you know, if it's a car crash or something. Um so, you know, whereas with with a sort of can with a sort of long term illness like cancer, um, it's definitely a big build up and tough journey throughout it. And then you you you're probably done with your grieving by the time 
yeah, the anticipatory death happens. Say there are people listening to this podcast that have gone through a similar experience to you. They, they're really young. They've lost a sibling or someone that's like a sibling. What kind of advice or words would you give them? Um, I think you've got to, you know, try your absolute best to stay positive in the situation you've been and be grateful of what you, you had before um, you lost your brother. You know, I've had 20, 24 great years with him. I look back at times really fondly um, and I think carrying his his name wherever it might be is, is definitely a huge bit of advice. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Maybe talking about it to people who are equally as close to him is not the best idea because it can open up pretty awkward some uh, conversations and because you're speaking directly with someone who's struggling like you are, whether that be like a direct family member or his best friend as well. Um, I speak about Will more to secondary friends, wider groups of friends um, who don't know the journey we exactly went through. And I'm telling them, and I feel like I'm probably not getting bored telling them, um, and it's me getting it off my chest. But if I'm doing that to somebody who went through the journey, it's not always the best idea. So obviously counselling can work to a degree. I went to one counselling session and it wasn't for me. Um, I just didn't in, enjoy sort of forcibly, they were trying to forcibly make me upset and, and put it on the table. And I was just not really into that at all. If I wanted to get upset, it would happen naturally. And it would, you know, something might be, something might be a fact of that. I mean, well, most most recently, actually, on Sunday at the, at the England Euros final, we were in the stadium, and Will's funeral song was the um, you know, "Sky Full of Stars" by Coldplay. I don't listen to that song because it was his song when he when he came out and when got um, cremated. It's just a song. If it comes on the radio, turn the radio off. Um, not interested in it. Um, you know, it's for special occasions, and it brings back too much of a raw emotion. But you know. It, England losing this penalty shootout and the whole stadium just starts playing it's a sky full of stars whilst Italy are celebrating and oh, no. it's not a situation at all and, you know, a few of my, my pals were there and they, they knew this script and they knew the story they knew you know they were there as well some of them uh, the, the funeral and you know one of the guys was Will's best mate as well so um that was that was tough but now going back to the advice part um I think you you need you know you need to try and, and and sort of definitely think of things to keep his name going because you do take a massive massive load of strength um, in that and uh, you know if you don't have anything any ideas or something then you know try and you know maybe just think about going out with a few pals on on like a, a little jog or something on a on an anniversary or or just to sort of you know go and reflect about some people. People can sometimes think that it's just really easy to go to like a grave or a spot where ashes may be laid and go and pay respects that way, but it's it's too it's too raw. You're going there and you you're purposely trying to get yourself upset and think about things. If you yeah. do that, going out, getting yourself out and doing a bit of getting a bit of fresh, going on a big hike somewhere with a couple of close friends on a special anniversary day is is, is a good bit of advice um, and. Um, yeah, and and just sort of you know, this sounds very selfish to say this, but think about your situation. You know, one one thing which which I've done probably twice since Will passed away when I've been struggling quite a bit is just you know I was sat on a plane once and you don't have you know 
I'll go to planes and you don't have any signal, you don't have anyone ringing you or texting you, annoying you. So I was just in a meal on my own on the flight and I just wrote down a list on my notes about what I've done since Will's died and what you know I've done for him and all of the, the certain trips I've done and just wrote them all down you when you write it down whether it be pen and paper or a notepad or just on your mobile phone it you, you read it back and you it brings you a bit of a sense of achievement and pride on everything you've done so there's, yeah. there's plenty of you know coping mechanisms mechanisms like that um and yeah and just speak to people and definitely you know i know i sort of said my thing about counseling but speaking to someone in work or a friend which might not have known your sibling is always a good good idea. And if they don't want to listen to you, you know, you, you question how much of a good friend they are anyway. Um, they, they should they should at least listen to you and sort of they might not want to say anything or they might not have the mouth to say the right thing back to you. And quite often there is nothing right they can say back. But speaking to a good listener about certain things is, is a good is definitely a good idea. Well, George, I really appreciate your positivity and I think you're going to help so many of the people who listen to this podcast who may be struggling. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, that's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me on.